the Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 584 for August 20th, 2017. T-Mobile launches its first 600 megahertz cell sites in Wyoming, the essential PH1 starts shipping, and Android O is about to get a name. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Chunky Podcast application, available now for Android, iOS, and Windows Phone 8 for $1.99. Kicking off the news, a number of technology companies are asking the Supreme Court to consider the potential adverse outcomes if law enforcement is given warrantless access to personal information such as location data. The companies filed a brief with the Supreme Court, which will soon hear a case about how law enforcement obtained a suspect's location by taking the data from a third party without a warrant. The case, and the company's collective opinion, hinges on the third-party doctrine, which has been in place since 1979. And uh, the corporations uh, that signed the brief cl- together collect, transmit, and hold immense amounts of customer-generated data uh, that they use in their services. And if the Supreme Court decides that that data held by those parties should be up for grabs, the corporations will have to provide it whenever law enforcement asks. So they feel this violates the spirit of the Fourth Amendment, which guarantees certain expectations of privacy and could in turn convince people to use their online services less. They say the transmission of data will only grow as digital technology Technologies continue to develop and become more integrated into our lives. And because that data is transmitted, it can reveal a wealth of detail about how, how people's personal lives, uh, as well as how users of digital technologies reasonably expect to retain significant privacy in set data. So the Fourth Amendment doctrine must adapt to this new reality. And the signees include some of the biggest names out there, including Apple, Cisco, Airbnb, Dropbox, Evernote, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, Nest, OAuth, Snap, Twitter, and Verizon. The companies filed the brief through the ACLU, which is participating in the upcoming case. So, of course, with a warrant, any of these companies provide this data anyways, which, of course, you know, warrants sometimes are easy to get, sometimes they're not. It depends on judges, depends on the evidence they have already. It's, you know, it's such a hard thing to nail down because that it, it varies so much. So, okay, in that case, then if they've got a warrant, they can get all this information as as much as they want. And uh, just recently on Netflix, I watched this movie, Enemy of the State. And I remember watching this way, way back when it came out. It was like 1998 or 99. It, it, it's an old movie now. Watching it today, I'm like, well, what's interesting about this movie anymore? Because all of this stuff is true. Like, it, it's somewhat dramatic, but uh, with what what Edward Snowden had leaked out with all the stuff that he, you know, uh, revealed, they were doing all of this. Uh, And it's like no surprise and it's not shocking and not even uh, absurd anymore like it was when the movie came out in 1998. And it uh, just goes to show how much can erode over time now that, you know, we're 15 years past that. And you think about all the services that you use and and whether or not you're someone who's a a big social media user uh, or not, um, there's a good chance that you're at least, you know, somewhat on the periphery of it and, and, you know, using applications that access this stuff. And so those apps uh, generally work the best when they gather your number one, your location data and number two, other specific personal information about you. And so if there is, uh, you know, if there's a even just kind of a passive use of these applications, it doesn't even have to be you're posting every three seconds uh, your latest picture on Instagram. It's a passive use of these applications that's collecting this data so that it can provide you the best you know, information and context in the feeds that you're looking at. It's a lot of information about you specifically uh, that could pinpoint not only where you are, but also what you're doing and what you're looking at. And it's, it's, a, it's very interesting to, uh, to think about like how that has changed even in the last five years uh, in the number, of, uh, the number of these apps that we're using. It's not just Facebook anymore. No, and it's really tied together too. Of course, uh, you know, if you purchase something on Amazon, then basically anything you've done on anything else is tied to your Amazon, essentially. And you know, you do a Google search. I search for a, a, a Polaris slingshot because uh, uh, somebody at work bought one. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm I'm curious what kind of engine that thing has in it. And now every single website I visit, there's a Polaris slingshot ad on the the page now. And I'm like, well, that's okay. I don't need one of those. And it's really interesting how that does happen. Yeah. And I mean, I think about I was uh, bought a new car a couple of months ago, had the trial of the Sirius XM. And, uh, you know, I get these incessant emails from them about, you know, sign up, resign up this and that. Um, and at one point I went and I did a little bit of digging uh, on their site just to see if I they were indeed offering me the best deal. 
for for a renewal. And I went as far as like adding one of the plans to the to my cart. And then I, of course, I closed the web browser. And now it's literally probably every 18 hours, maybe, you know, 24 hours, I'm getting an email. You're almost done. You can finish this up. It's it's still in your cart. Just log back in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, like it's and that's obviously that's a very specific one. Like you've logged in. But, you know, when you think about how people are uh, or how these companies are using this information, the ad thing is a great example of it. Being able to uh, when you pull up, um, you know, a, a, one of your mobile applications and it shows you all of the nearby things that, uh, you know, events that are happening or whatever they are, um, you know, that type of information. And it's related back to what your interests are, what you've looked at previously and the algorithms that are being used by the companies are how these different things are being offered up to you. So um, it, it's just something that you have to be very careful with as you're using this stuff. And obviously, all these companies are looking out for the rights uh, and protections of their users, obviously, their business interests too, but they those business interests are tied directly to how a user is going to feel about how this information is getting used. Right. And of course, even if you don't even use a computer or have any social media, have zero electronic uh, support or capabilities, now that there's so many people with online services and social media and, uh, you know, cameras going constantly... As uh, you know, some of you may have seen with uh, some of the protests that were going on in Charlottesville, uh, you know, social media went to work in identifying people that were in the crowds of pictures and being covered by the news. And yes, you may not have posted, told anybody or even looked at the website that that, that event was going on and you went and participated. You are known in your, you know, the facial recognition software out there can run bases like crazy. You've got databases, you know, let's say somebody posts a picture of you on Facebook, you don't even know it, you know, they've got your face, they can uh, then, you know, uh, match it up with a bunch of people that you know, because if your face appears in a few different pictures, they know who you are, even if they don't know who you are, they they know exactly who your friends are. And you've seen the friend matching algorithms on Facebook. And it's like, kind of scary when they, you know, you may know this person. It's like, well, how do they know that? And they know. So it's, it, you don't even have to be involved anymore because so many other people have it that it's, it's, it's just mass adopted and your privacy is, uh, you know, it, it, it gets very questionable. And, and these third party doctrines are, it, it's not going to really hold up under the pressure of law enforcement now. Yeah, so uh, a lot to, uh, to be thinking about with this. The uh, upcoming case obviously will be highly watched by everyone in the technology industry and uh, we'll, of course, report on it after it is completed. Qualcomm Tuesday announcing a major expansion of Spectra. It's planned to offer manufacturers a drop-in hardware and software solution for advanced camera technology integration into phones and other devices powered by Snapdragon chips. The expanded Spectra suite includes three new hardware camera modules. The flagship uh, is an active depth-sensing camera that uses an infrared projector and camera to create a 3D map of its environment, much like LiDAR. The other two modules are a passive depth sensing version using two standard cameras, an iris scanning front camera, and previous Spectra mo- models, uh, modules that is focused on photography, while the new modules en- enable and enhance additional phone functions, including biometric security, advanced AR, room scale VR, and AI-powered object recognition. The three new camera modules rely on new versions of the ISP to be found in future Snapdragon chips. It has been redesigned from the ground up to be optimized for that depth sensing. So the active depth sensing hardware and software is compatible with Google's Tango AR platform, which should enable Tango phones that are similar, cheaper, and have much better AR performance. And when used with VR applications, the active depth sensing can be used for position tracking that's good enough to enable room-scale VR in phones. The new version of Spectra also includes advanced new algorithms to reduce noise and improve low-light performance in both still phones, uh, photos, and video uh, by intelligently analyzing multiple frames. The new capabilities will be part of the next generation Snapdragon chips, which have yet to be announced. This stuff is kind of amazing because if you think about it, you can, uh, I, I, I'm going to take one step back here. I watched uh, and asked this old house and they, they had an iPad and they bolted on this, you know, kind of big, ugly camera to it to do this, you know, room measuring uh, application where they create a 3D model of a room for, you know, uh, remodeling. Uh, this uh, hardware that's in here is probably way more powerful than their add-on module. And I'm just now thinking, oh, Google can now take this with every Android phone, you know, in the future here. They'll have this on every phone. You can basically map every single building in 
internally, every building that exists, including your house, for example, if you want, you know, to add your house to Google Maps and you're sending somebody to your house, uh, you know, you can pinpoint them to your front door and to every room in the house and what bedroom they'll be staying in. And I mean, it, in where, where the kitchen cabinets are, what, where the coffee cups are, you could have your whole house, you know, mapped that way because it'll be completely accurate, completely 3D. Uh, and and it'll just, it, it can be amazing. Uh, it, really, you know, it's like the next step in, uh, you know, accuracy and mapping. So, and if you don't think mapping has come a long way, think about when you took a vacation, um, even as little as I'm gonna call it 15 years ago and what you, how you did, what you did 15 years ago. Um, I, I recall, uh, right after, uh, the beginning, uh, beginning of the, uh, turn of the century, that is, it was, uh, a trip to Europe that I took. I didn't even take a phone with me, you know, and this was less than seven, less than 20 years ago. And, you know, so 10 years ago then, what were you doing? And there was, there was mapping that was out there, right? Google Maps was around, but it wasn't the thing that you had to have and you had to use when you were traveling. You still had a lot of paper printouts. You were still doing, you know, quite a bit of, uh, you know, maybe you would look up something, but you wouldn't have this phone uh, tracking you. You probably used an in-dash GPS, but it was, uh, or you may have if you had one, but it wasn't the standard at that point. And so, and, and to then speed up that to five years ago, after we're basically entrenched in using these devices as the way that we, you know, navigate around, to then this turn over to indoor mapping uh, that Google started on the commercial side, whether it was an airport, a museum, a shopping center, all of these areas that you were able to then see what was inside those places. Take that that to the next level, and that's what Joey's talking about here, where you're you're going into um, smaller more intimate spaces, spaces that don't have as much traffic but can easily get mapped out. And further then, you can you can get to an immense amount of granular detail, uh, a, a level of detail that many of us don't even know. Like uh, I think about, I was trying to find matches yesterday. I have no idea where my matches are in my house, but you could say this is where the matches are, right? And you could map out that kind of stuff in the house. So it's, it's incredibly powerful how much you can do. Well, you could search for it in Google and it would tell you the matches are in the drawer over the, because it would almost know. I mean, if you open the drawer quick and shut the drawer and it would remember where the matches are. I mean, and it would be able to tell you, like literally lead you there because it has a 3D map of your whole house. No matter where you're at in the house, it could take you right to the drawer. Yeah, and it, that, that's, that's incredibly powerful when you think about that. I mean, and there's, um, again, thinking about the number of times you go and, and you pull up, you know, Waze or Google Maps in your car to go somewhere, you know how to get there. But you do it because you just want to make sure that you're doing it right. And um, and it's or you're, you want to see some other, you know, something else like traffic or you want to see if there's, you know, uh, some aspect of this, you know, this journey that's going to be different than a time before. Um, and, you know, whether or not the, the matches are in the same drawer as they were and whether Google is right or not is something that that's how this technology will evolve. And it'll be, you know, it, it, will it be constantly in the background, you know, scanning and, and checking where stuff is and then using that photo recognition to tell you where the matches are? I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly that technology is available and could, uh, you know, could make its way to our devices. So anyway, yeah, the, the, I didn't you know, anticipate the story being how to find the matches, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of what it, uh, you know, as an example, something that is incredibly interesting, incredibly powerful. And of course, then there's, you know, there's just an an amazing wealth of other things, you know, medical technology things could be using this sort of technology, uh, you know, not to mention architects and builders and, you know, room planners, uh, you know, that uh, great technology for them because it really uh, leads to, you know, fast results and, you know, a way to to pre-plan a room even without having to, to do any actual, you know, real, you know, doing it all by hand. Yeah. And I mean, there's, again, an immense number of applications that can be used with this. So it's not just, you know, one thing or another that we're talking about, but it's a, you know, you kind of think about the the concept in general and then you take it to the nth degree. And that's really where this stuff gets interesting. So Qualcomm, of course, on the forefront of all of it. In carrier news, Sprint this week adding a number of calling features to its version of the Samsung Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus. They released an over-the-air update, uh, including something they're calling uh, the calling plus feature, 
Uh, this feature allows users to use voice and data at the same time, no matter if they're on LTE or Wi-Fi. The previous Wi-Fi calling feature has now been rolled in as well. So according to Sprint, Calling Plus combines two features, one old and one new. Wi-Fi calling is our voice over IP calling feature, letting you make and receive calls over Wi-Fi. Voice and text on the Sprint LTE network is then allowed while simultaneous voice and data can occur. Users will need to activate that feature through settings, calling plus, and then sliding that feature to on. T-Mobile Wednesday said it's activated its first 600 megahertz cell site in Cheyenne, Wyoming. T-Mobile is using Nokia equipment to provide LTE coverage across Cheyenne in the 600 megahertz band. The carrier also plans to light up 600 megahertz service in other rural areas around the country by the end of the year, including other parts of Wyoming, northwest Oregon, west Texas, southwest Kansas, and the Oklahoma Panhandle, as well as western North Dakota, Maine, uh, coastal northern North Carolina, and central Pennsylvania, central New Jersey, and eastern Washington. T-Mobile says deploying LTE on 600 megahertz in these small markets will improve its coverage from 315 million pops to 321 million by the end of the year. Uh, there are currently no devices that can use it, but according to T-Mobile, Samsung and LG plan to release compatible heads, handsets during the fourth quarter of the year. So I was just thinking about this going, well, this is kind of strange because, you know, people in, you know, small towns, rural towns, they, you know, they're, they're not, uh, uh, you know, probably that desperate for rural coverage. But thinking about it, though, they would be desperate for T-Mobile's coverage because of the, you know, the way that they uh, have their plans, kind of like you, you switch them, Mickey, where you can stream your video and do all that. And there is a lack of coverage in small towns. And if they go to Cheyenne and really, you know, promote locally, you know, buy this new phone once it finally has you know, 600 support, you will be covered now by T-Mobile and have good coverage around, you know, this rural area because it's 600 megahertz with the, you know, the long propagation. Uh, you know, they've got uh, a, a small town market there that they can really clench up because nobody else is paying attention to small markets rate right, at the moment, other than the, the really tiny local regional carriers that have usually been there for many years. Yeah, generally what you'll find is the, you know, the coverage along interstates, the coverage along major highways, that's the coverage that's getting focused on. And if you find yourself in one of these towns that's outside of that, I'll say main thoroughfare that gets you, you know, in and around the United States, this is where you've got coverage in, in probably one of the places that you're going to have to use one of those regional carriers. And at best case, Verizon has uh, you know purchased somebody who had coverage there, and that's where you, who you're getting to use there. But T-Mobile and Sprint, forget about it. This is um, and this is uncharted for them. And so it is interesting that they decided that you know all, this expensive, expensive spectrum is going to be because uh, they spent billions on it is going to be the spectrum that gets used for the deployment, but. Uh, on the other hand, it's also something, to your point, that's got the, the propagation characteristics that allow it to cover the biggest swath of area with the lowest number of towers. And they don't have to, to worry about the, the density of people that are going to suck it up in a way that's going to be detrimental to the actual quality of service that's being provided to each individual user. And so it makes a lot of sense for them to do this. So uh, another 5 million, 6 million people doesn't sound like a lot. But when you're talking about covering it over wide swaths of area where you've got literally like one person for every acre or one person for every multiple, you know, tens of acres, stuff like that, it makes a big deal. And it's, uh, it's important for this stuff uh, as we move forward in our overall coverage of the country. Right. And no other carrier has 600 megahertz that they're planning on deploying as far as I, as far as I know, uh, especially not on a, a, a nationwide scale like T-Mobile. So this will, uh, you know, potentially in, uh, give them a huge uh, advantage in the rural area and could be, you know, could eventually take Verizon and blow them out of the water for, you know, the nationwide rural coverage because of the 600 megahertz. Yeah. The biggest thing to keep to remember with this, though, it's not functioning in any phones today. So that means any of the, you know, three, four, five hundred million devices that are out there today, nothing can use this. So this is all brand new stuff. So this is not a going to happen tomorrow and your phone's going to work in these areas tomorrow thing. No, but it it, it does provide a uh, a way for T-Mobile to say, okay, we've got new service in your area. You need to buy a new phone. But since you're in a rural area and you're somewhat desperate, I don't think they'll have any trouble selling the new phone with that particular coverage. Especially with how fast the speeds are. I, I was in another place today where I had, you know, 
speed tests that were over 100 megabits per second. And it's just, it's, it's so amazing when you see that. It's like, you know, again, it's this whole like race car mentality, right? Like where it works, it works really, really well. And, uh, you know, there are areas where you can't take it. You know, obviously you're not taking your Ferrari off on a, a dirt, you know, gravel road, but, uh, you know, along the freeways, it's working pretty good. Next up, Boost Mobile on Monday rolling out a new back-to-school service offering uh, families cheaper unlimited service. The new unlimited gigs plan costs $50 for one line, including unlimited talk and text, 8 gigs of mobile hotspot, optimized video, gaming, and music streams, and unlimited 4G LTE data for everything else. Additional lines of the unlimited gigs plan are $25 each for up to a total of five lines. The pricing matches that exactly of a recent promotion kicked off by competitor MetroPCS. The new unlimited gigs offer will be available starting August 22nd, and it continues uh, to offer its three gig plan for only $35 a month for those that don't need unlimited data. Additional lines on the three gig plan also cost $25 each. Xfinity Comcast's wireless service on Thursday said it has expanded its availability to every market which Comcast has a presence. The service was launched back in April but was limited to just a small selection of markets and now customers of Comcast can take advantage of the wireless offering and tie it to their existing wireless and television service. Xfinity has also tweaked its service plans offering unlimited service up to 20 gigs of high-speed LTE data for $45 per line per month. It also sells access for $12 per one gigabyte, which can be shared across all the lines on the plan. Xfinity offers all customers unlimited talk and text with a base of 100 megabytes of data to get them started. Taxes and fees are included in the pricing structure as well. Xfinity operates on Verizon's network, but will offload data traffic to the Comcast-owned Wi-Fi hotspots where available. Xfinity says there are 18 such, 18 million such hotspots positioned around the country. Xfinity offers a number of popular phones, including the latest from Samsung, including the Galaxy S8 and the Apple iPhone 7. Customers can pay full price for the hardware or via over time via monthly installments. In device news, more this week about LG's upcoming V30, uh, this time LG revealing details about the user interface and the announcement that the second screen that appeared on the V10 and the V20 will not be coming to the V30. So while the V30 adopts LG's full vision display aspect ratio of 18 by 9 in the second screen's place will be what LG calls a floating bar. This is a semi-transparent strip that will give V30 owners access to frequently used functions such as contacts and settings. LG says the floating bar can be dragged off the screen entirely when not needed. LG has changed up the always-on display as well, which is more customizable than before and includes shortcuts and two quick tools such as the music player and even photos. The software features uh, baked into the LG UX 6.0 include facial recognition that LG says will unlock the phone instantly, even if the display is off. Further, voice recognition uses a combination of the user's voice and self-generation keywords to unlock the phone without any button presses. The V30's camera gains access to Graphy, a tool for applying professional-looking styles to photos. LG explains the Graphy lets users pick stylized filters or moods created by pros who apply the settings, such as white balance, shutter speed, aperture, and ISO, to their own photos in order to achieve the same look. And finally, V30 owners will be able to create GIFs or movies by pasting together photos and video files, as well as customize the feel of the haptic vibration and other settings. LG is expected to announce the V30 coming up next week uh, at an event scheduled uh, in IFA in Berlin on August 31st, though very few of the details that we don't actually know about this device at this point. Sprint and T-Mobile on Friday both uh, introduced promotions making this device, the V30, more affordable. Sprint, for example, dropped the lease price of the G6, uh, or excuse me, these are devices other than the, the uh, promotion on that we'll be seeing here for the V30, the G6, uh, from $29 a month down to $20 a month. Uh, the full cost of that phone drops down to $480. Uh, T-Mobile offering a buy one, get one on both the G6 and the V20. Uh, both devices can either be purchased on an installment plan uh, or a full price, uh, which total about $500 a month. The V20 uh, will be about $480. Uh, customers need to buy devices and then register them to receive the rebate uh, on the second cost of the second phone. The rebate comes in the form of a prepaid MasterCard for a total of up to $500 on that card. The FCC this week approving a handset made by HTC that could be the next Pixel smartphone from Google. HTC manufactured last year's Pixel and Pixel XL handsets for Google. 
The FCC confirms that the new model in question, the G011A, includes LTE support for all of the major U.S. carriers in bands 2, 4, 5, 7, 12, 13, 17, 25, 26, 30, 41, and 66. It supports CDMA also in bands 0, 1, and 10 for voice service on both Sprint and Verizon. And the FCC also confirms that the phone will have Bluetooth, GPS, and dual-band Wi-Fi. Example screenshots provided by the uh, HTC for the phone's uh, FCC e-label provide a few more details about the device, including that it runs Android 8.0.1. Google-branded handsets, including the Nexus series uh, and Pixel series, will be the first to run Android 8, suggesting the G011A could be the Pixel. According to the screenshots, it will run the baseband radio Qualcomm Part MW8998, which would be only only be paired with the Snapdragon 835 processor. The wideband LTE support and potential Snapdragon 835 processor earmark the GO11A as uh, the flagship handset of some sort. Finally, screenshots uh, refer to the Active Edge, which would be used for squeeze to your assist or for your assistant. Active Edge sounds a lot like uh, Sense Edge that HTC has launched in the U11 smartphone from earlier this year. And uh, this feature could be brought over to the latest Pixel as that Google Assistant uh, functionality. Neither HTC or Google, of course, have confirmed the latest Pixel or this device. Essential Products on Wednesday began emailing customers who pre-ordered the PH1 smartphone. Uh, The device will be shipping to them very soon. Customers who pre-ordered the black version can expect to receive their phone within a week or so. The white version, though, is not yet ready, and so customers who ordered that white model will be receiving an email that says that your device is either a few weeks away or you can change your order to either the Black Moon to the Black Moon device, which will ship sooner. The phone is sold through Amazon and Best Buy and will be sold in addition to them through Sprint, the only U.S. carrier. Sprint began accepting pre-orders for the device recently uh, and will be able to be purchased by customers for fourteen fifty-eight per month or through a through that flex 18 month plan that totals about $450 uh, outright for that device also uh, the device itself uh, will be coming uh, if you choose to purchase with a 360 degree modular camera for an additional $200 or $16 a month the black version is available in stores within the next few weeks, according to Sprint, with the white model following at a later date. Uh, Sprint says the phone will support three-carrier channel, three-channel carrier aggregation on the network, which can theoretically hit download speeds in excess of 200 megabits per second. Uh, Essential also recently uh, has said that all of these devices will be shipping within the next week or so. HMD Global has sold uh, it, the sole licensee of the Nokia brand. Announcing this week, the Nokia 8 flagship Android handset. It will be formed of a 6000 series aluminum, polished to a high gloss in either black, blue, silver, or copper. Features a 5.3-inch quad HD screen, curved Gorilla Glass 5, powered by Snapdragon's 835 processor, 4 or 6 gigs of RAM, 64 or 128 gigs of storage. All versions support uh, microSD memory cards up to 128 gigabytes. The Nokia 8 has a dual camera configuration with two 13-megapixel cameras on the rear with an LED flash. One camera captures full color, the other monochrome images, and also both feature Zeiss optics. The front camera has 13-megapixel sensor on it as well, uh, display-based flash on that. All three have f2.0 lenses. The Nokia 8 includes software that allows people to shoot uh, photos and or videos on both the front and rear at the same time. Other specs include a 3,090 milliamp hour battery, Bluetooth, GPS, Wi-Fi, NFC, and Cat9 LTE. Runs on Android 7.1 Nougat. Costs $700, though HMD did not immediately specify where the Nokia 8 would be sold. In concurrent to the solar eclipse happening tomorrow in many parts of North America, Google plans to reveal the name of Android 8 on August 21st. Google has so far only indicated that Android 8 will start with the letter O, and the guesses of what the dessert name have ranged from Oreo to oatmeal. Google's named uh, branded Nexus and Pixel devices will be the first to receive the new operating system. Google will make the announcement at 2.40 p.m. Eastern Time, which is the time that the eclipse is set to hit the East Coast. So what do you think they're going to name the Android O? I think it's Oreo. Uh, yeah, I kind of do too, but 
because everybody knows Oreo, right? I mean, that's like one of the biggest ones. But but of course, they, they can't just name it that on their own. They do have to probably do a branding deal like they did with KitKat. Yeah, but I think that makes sense. I mean, you, you going back to, for, you know, with all the other names that they could put in, in place and, oh, you know, Oreo is kind of what comes to mind. So hopefully they've done that or maybe not even hopefully they could do whatever they want. It could be whatever and we're just going to call it whatever. But it seems to me Oreo makes the most sense. Well, how would you make an oatmeal statue anyway? I mean, I, that would be tough, right? <laughs> Out in the, uh, the, the Google <laughs> bowl, campus. I guess. Like Froyo, right? It's just a bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> that at least they made it look kind of like, uh, you know, they, they were able to make that look kind of fancy. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. It's just not interesting when it's oatmeal. It's probably not no. oatmeal. Moving on. Software news. A new setting discovered recently in iOS allows iPhone owners to quickly and temporarily disable Touch ID. Pressing the power button rapidly five times activates SOS emergency mode. And the purpose of this mode is to let people bypass the lock tools to make an emergency phone call. Along with allowing emergency calls, the mode also disables Touch ID. The only way to unlock the phone once Touch ID has been disabled is via the PIN or password. The feature was first spotted on Twitter and later verified by The Verge. iOS 11 is still in beta testing and should be rolled out to the general public later next month. So currently, there's kind of a there's kind of a way to do that already with the the, the current iOS 10. If you do hit your Touch ID button a whole bunch of times, I don't I didn't count it specifically how many times you need to add to do it. Uh, if it fails recognition a bunch of times, it will then lock down the uh, Touch ID, and then you have to do this. So this is this is um, this is an intentional decision by Apple to do this um, because be, because this is then accessing the. Uh, the 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 medical ID screen uh, screen and the SOS screen as well. So they figure at that point the owner doesn't have the device in their hand, or if they do, they're in trouble. So you might as well take away the fingerprint recognition at that point, which is you know completely fine. Right, and you know it's, it it is um, you know it is interesting how there's there are certain triggers that will disable this functionality. Um, another one is if you happen to unlock uh, other features within the phone. Uh, a number of times uh, without or, or use other features in the phone without unlocking it. So the camera, um, this happens to me a lot where I take a lot of pictures and uh, and then I go to log, you know, turn on the phone at some point later and it asks me for my password. Or if you go to the notification panel, it will do it as well. Right. So, it, you know, this privacy and security thing is becoming more and more of an issue, uh, you know, with the with searches and things like that. And, and I'm still kind of wondering... Um, you know, why or or if when when Apple will start adding some more uh, of these, you know, trigger fail safe things into settings, you know, like having a, a kill fingerprint where if you put one of your other fingers on it, uh, it will wipe the device instantly. Or, you know, why isn't there an option to, uh, you know, if you, you know, do some other thing, it, it will lock down or, you know, there's some some more security minded features in there uh, that are available. Or if you do not unlock your device within a day, it will just wipe itself. You know, you won't have this 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 thing where, uh, you know, uh, let's say law enforcement has this device in their hand and they're, you know, dr- trying to get a warrant and get the get it unlocked or get it hacked by the FBI. You know, we saw that uh, whole case with the FBI. What if somebody set their a device to just wipe after 24 hours and all of that stuff kind of goes away because you know that that's too uh you know it's too short of a time for anything to actually happen so i'm kind of wondering if they'll do anything like this in the in the future yeah kind of thinking about your um you know using a different finger to do a wipe i mean it would probably be more like a a series of fingers right like almost like a code with your fingers and you do like you know hit up use a different bunch of different fingers like one is the trigger and then you do another three fingers and then it unlocks or it wipes it or does something like that so all sorts of stuff that could happen with that but obviously you know they're thinking through the different things that uh you know they're they're trying to do to protect themselves from a security perspective and whatnot and and ultimately it's 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 not up to us and the things that we want it's up to apple and what they decide to roll out Google this week updated its Google search and Gboard apps for Android devices, adding 30 additional languages that support uh, voice typing. Uh, Google targeted African, Indian, and other Asia-Pacific dialects to help those coming online for the first time. Some of the bigger additions include Swahili, Bengali, Sudanese, Georgian, Latvian, and Urdu. Uh, Google will soon support voice dictation for these languages within Google Translate as well. Separately, English speakers in the U.S. can now use voice dictation to find and insert emoji into text. People can utter phrases like winky face emoji. And Gboard for Android will find the proper emoji and drop it in. Google says it will add voice dictated emoji support to more languages soon. Gboard is free to download from the Google Play Store. 
Google on Wednesday announcing a significant update to its G Suite productivity applications, including Google Docs, Slides, and Sheets. Specifically, the app gains the abilities for collaborating with others, including the ability to save version numbers of documents in order to keep track of their progression from initial draft to final. Users can also preview what a clean version of the document will look like, as well as accept or reject all suggestions uh, at once. When it comes to mobile devices, Docs, Sheets, and Slides now allow Android and iOS users to suggest changes from their phone or tablet. Google says new templates should help speed up the process of creating documents and spreadsheets, and users can now create their own templates with the proper add-ons. Lastly, enterprise and education users gain access to new cloud searching tools that integrate across G Suite properties, including Drive, Gmail, Calendar, and others. The new features are rolling out over the next few weeks. Now, uh, I know a lot of people are using, uh, you know, the the Google suite of applications for uh, all sorts of different things, whether it's collaboration on the personal side or even, you know, through businesses. I know a lot of smaller groups are using Google because it allows for easy access, easy sharing. You don't have to email stuff. You just, you know, you, you put something in a location and then you can share the link and uh, it works out really well. Um, you know, we, we used to use it a lot for show notes. We have since switched over to Evernote. It was just a better tool for us for sharing. Uh, but I ultimately don't find myself in Google Docs all that much except for a handful uh, of documents at this point that I share with family and friends. But I mean, it's probably less than 10 documents I'm actually using at this point within Google. Yeah, it feels like Microsoft has really pushed their 365 and the price has come down. And I think they're really competing uh, with Google on that uh, front pretty heavily and probably winning on that because of just, you know, Microsoft uh, has always been synonymous with business and, you know, they've got the full-fledged, you know, office suite. And of course, even with 365, you get a full-fledged, you know, Microsoft Exchange server where you've got, you know, basically unlimited configuration capabilities where uh, Google and Gmail does not have that. I mean, there is simplicity involved with it, but it is quite a bit different. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's interesting. I was, uh, you mentioned the, the, the synonymity, synonymity of using the office suite and, uh, you know, I was using a spreadsheet um, or using Excel this week to create a spreadsheet on the iPad. Um, and it was something that I just needed to whip together very quickly. Um, I didn't need anything fancy. It was, you know, maybe, you know, 10 columns, uh, five, eight rows, something like that. Uh, but I was able to put it together and actually do a nice little, you know, and, and you can do all the formatting with the borders and everything in there and it works out just fine. Um, saved it up to, uh, you know, to OneDrive and then using Outlook was able to, to then attach it to an email all very simply and was able to do this. And I thought, you know, this is, you know, for me, kind of how I use uh, these types of services. And it's the same thing when I get somebody who will email me a document and I want to do a, a markup on it. You can still easily do that. Uh, within the mobile versions of these applications and you don't need the full versions, but I still want to have the functionality of that and to be able to sync it then over to, to OneDrive and access it through a web browser or through a computer. This is all, uh, you know, stuff that is, is important and I think relevant and in probably in many ways better than Google for, for the business side. Now that's not to say that Google is not amazing in what they've been able to do and basically open source this stuff and this functionality. So you don't even have to think about using Microsoft if you don't want to, uh, but it just kind of depends. And I, I think this was, you know, one, uh, one step forward here with this, uh, the productivity side of these with their updates to the apps this week. So good stuff from them. Uh, also from Google, they brought back the assistant-based Allo messaging application, uh, or brought it, not back, but they brought it to the web via its Google Chrome browser. Some limitations here. For now, uh, the app can only interact with Allo on Android smartphones, iPhone support coming later. And Google says Allo web access requires the latest version of the mobile Allo app on your handset in order to function. The setup process includes a unique scannable QR code to link the phone or and web accounts. There are some limitations. So, for example, Google says Allo for web only displays what what's in the mobile application, meaning if the phone runs out of battery or the user quits the app, the web client will cease to work or show conversations. More significantly, uh, a number of features are not available on the web at all, such as adding and removing of group members, notification and privacy settings, and uh, selections of chat tools, including taking photos, deleting conversations, and blocking contacts. Outside of those limitations, though, the web version of Allo lets Android device owners send messages uh, to one another from their web browser. It's free to download from the Google Play Store. 
Google on Wednesday enabled free voice calls from its Google Home speaker. Google Home is powered by the Google Assistant, and Google says homeowners in the U.S. and Canada can initiate free voice calls to anyone in their contacts, as well as any businesses, by simply asking Google Home to make the call. Calls are completed over the Home's Wi-Fi connection, and for now, those who receive a call made with Google Home will see an unknown or no caller ID when it rings through to the number, though Google is planning to let people display to display their mobile device number in home calls by the end of the year. People who subscribe to Google Voice or Project Fi can use their Google number with Home right away. Also on Google Home this week, the speaker was enabled to offer the ability to connect to Bluetooth devices. Google first announced this feature at its I.O. developer conference earlier this year and has just now enabled the functionality. So using the Google Home app on a mobile device, homeowners can connect to the speaker via Bluetooth for streaming music or other media files. Until now, Home could only stream music through Google Cast connections, which meant over Wi-Fi. Google also enabled uh, free Spotify accounts through Google Home this week. People who use the free version of Spotify can set the music provider as the default streaming service when listening to Google Home. Previously, Google Home only supported the paid Spotify premium streaming service. Google this week said its YouTube streaming service is expanding to 14 additional uh, markets uh, with another 17 to follow in the weeks ahead. The new markets include Baltimore, Boston, Cincinnati, Columbus, Jacksonville, Las Vegas, Louisville, Memphis, Nashville, Pittsburgh, San Antonio, Seattle, Tampa, and West Palm Beach, Florida. These markets, along with the 10 markets already active, bring YouTube TV service to about half of all Americans. YouTube said it has struck a deal with Sinclair so that it can deliver ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC affiliates to nine of those 14 markets. The 17 markets on deck for YouTube in the near future include Austin, Birmingham, Cleveland, Denver, Grand Rapids, Greensboro, uh, Salem, uh, Harrisburg, Hartford, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Milwaukee, Norfolk, uh, Oklahoma City, Raleigh, Salt Lake City, San Diego, and St. Louis. The same deals with Sinclair brings those ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC uh, affiliates to 11 of those 17. YouTube TV costs $35 a month, includes up to six personal accounts with on. Uh, unlimited DVR recordings and access for all of them. Uh, The number of channels is still limited, though, to about 50. Questions and comments this week. First up is a comment from Charles, and he says, Mickey and Joey, thank you so much for the candid advice uh, with the iPhone SE. With that advice, I pulled the trigger. Activation was smooth and fast. I was up and running in about less than an hour. So far, I'm loving the service as well. It's stellar to the Verizon network. Stellar just like the Verizon network, so what's not to like? Still haven't quite figured out how all of the hotspot part of it works, but I will. Uh, For the phone, Joey, you're totally right. I'm in love with it. Besides being light and small to fit in the pocket, I'm amazed at how much easier it is to type in than on the 7 or the 7 Plus. I can't explain it, but I'm back to speeds uh, that I had when I left and moved to the iPhone 6 and one-handed typing another welcome throwback moment and like you I love this phone uh, with for me there are no shortcomings it's fast and nimble the display is more than accurate uh, adequate and I think cell phones need to be right for the user and this one is right for me thanks for your help and dedication uh, for all of us cell phone junkies Charles in Vancouver you know that was one point I, I totally forgot to mention is the uh, the, the, the one-handed use uh, the device is small enough to use with one finger uh, comfortably, and that is actually a very big benefit that I completely forgot about as well. Yeah, and obviously that's something that uh, you know I can appreciate. I don't necessarily have it, but I can appreciate it from using these smaller devices. And uh, you know, I, I still think about it. I guess if you're if you're somebody who's using a, an iPad a lot, the smaller device is not nearly as impactful. Um, but if you do happen to find yourself as this device is your only device, I still question that size. And I say, there's you got to have another size of a screen that you're using for other things. You don't have to, but it, it, it helps. Uh, you, you know, it really, I mean, it really depends on what you're doing too. It, it really depends. Uh, you know, and, oh, so for a hotspot, if you uh, go to your settings uh, screen, it should be a, a few down from the Wi-Fi list. So it should be near the top of the settings list. Uh, if your plan supports it, there'll be an option in there called personal hotspot, and you'll see it probably set to off uh, by default. But if your plan doesn't support the personal hotspot, it will not even be in that list at all, and you won't be able to find it. Yeah, that's right. And ultimately, you know, that's, again, plan supported. Um, some of the prepaid services offer either limited hotspot or 
uh, no hotspot at all. Uh, and that's just kind of part of the deal that comes with, uh, you know, with going with one of those services. Next up is a comment from Michael. He says, Mickey and Joey, regarding your discussion in episode 583, my employer migrated to Outlook 365, so I'm now on the Outlook iOS app as well. I agree that the Outlook user experience isn't terrible, but I share the frustrations about its inherent disadvantages of not being native. When I'm in the car and I ask Siri to send an email or add a calendar appointment, those requests don't trigger Outlook. I've also had trouble syncing my work Outlook calendar with my personal Google and iOS calendars, which I assume is because of the enhanced security that lured my employer to the dark side in the first place. It is annoying that the Outlook app requires additional touches to get to my calendar when mail or other people is up in the application and so forth. Uh, With the native iOS equivalents, there are all separate applications, which I actually prefer. Take care, guys. Thanks and for all the great shows, Michael. Well, uh, a couple of things, you know, I um, I personally don't use uh, Siri to send emails or add appointments, although if I did, this absolutely would be an issue. Um, you know, for my workflow on this, I always just set a reminder and deal with whatever it is later so that I can add in all the right details and, and stuff. As far as having these extra touches, um, you know, I get it. If you're trying to go to your calendar and you click on Outlook and it's on mail, then you've got to click over. Yeah, that might be a little bit uh, of a, you know, an extra step, if you will. But um, I personally like having everything uh, all in one app application uh, personal preference there for sure right but then you lose also that uh let's say home screen integration you lose the drop down panel if, you, if your calendar is not uh synced over to your ios calendar so you won't see uh you know the the, the panel you won't see some of this other stuff and i've left my uh, i did install the outlook app and I've, I've i've been using it not fully but i still left the full exchange account syncing on ios as well so i've got kind of it's kind of duplicating and and i've got to fix notifications because i get two notifications every time an email comes in but um i I haven't worked on that part yet so uh i will tell you that there there is uh that it is possible to put up a widget that shows your calendar um on on the widget panel outlook does offer that so um i do use that quite a bit so um but yeah to that point there are there are other limitations michael for sure uh and and so um i i do say you know obviously with a grain of salt you know there is not one application that works out really well although i talked about all the reasons why i'm enjoying it uh and joey you know the question for you is you mentioned it last week that you had made the switch over to test it out you mentioned you've got it concurrently running so uh, what are you thinking about it so far as far are you actually diving in and using it or are you kind of just sticking to mail most of the time Uh, you know it's just kind of half and half at the moment um yeah i remember when i remember it's there i use it and when i see a notification come in i have been using the you know archive and mark is red kind of uh uh in the notification actions which is uh very nice that that works that way um i some of the, the 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 different I'm so used to the uh, the built-in mail client that the buttons are in kind of different locations, and even that is a little confusing. Uh, you know, the signature is not a, a rich text, which is kind of annoying still that they don't have that support. But otherwise, it's nice. I, I, I don't really have any major complaints with it yet, but I haven't really dived in much to really get into it. However, I have used the searching this week. I used it like three or four times where I was actually able to find what I wanted to find via search and, you know, where the built-in doesn't, it, it just doesn't work. It gives you something from seven years ago or an hour ago and nothing in between. Yeah. And that, that you're, you're absolutely right. And that is, that is one of the key things with it. I, I have no qualms at this point now about archiving an email and knowing and having that confidence that I can find it by searching it, not having to leave it in my inbox so that I can pull it back up at some point. So that is very nice. The other thing is you start to, you know, use the, the searching even more. I mentioned that you can go into people and search for a person. And then from that person, um, you know, it'll have relevant recent emails and then relevant recent attachments. I use that to find an attachment from one specific person this week in something that was archived, which was super helpful because I was just all I needed was to see this attachment. And so I knew who had sent it to me. And so you search for the person because they were in my contacts and boom, there it was. So um, I do appreciate all of these you know, kind of enhancements and and little add-ons that they've done. And it's not perfect, of course, it's not native. And so that's going to inherently be that, that constant, you know, chronic issue. Um, But uh, either way, it is nice to, to get that feedback. And so Michael, thank you very much for writing in and telling us about your experience with it. 
Finally, this week, a question or questions uh, from Patrick. He says, hello, TCPJ. Uh, I think you've tested digits before, T-Mobile's digits, that is. What exactly can it do? Is it the same as AT&T Number Sync? Does it work with any device, Android, iPhone, iPad? And is it an app that needs to be installed on the device? Also, why does the new mid-to-low-end Android phone still use a micro-USB port? Uh, is this a cost thing, marketing to differentiate features from higher-end phones that low-end phones do not have, etc.? Thanks, as always, for the great shows, Patrick. Well, uh, let's talk about digits first here. So there's two ways to think about it, two different really functionalities of it. So one is a way that is very much like number sync uh, from AT&T, and it's a way to answer your main phone number on any device, including other phones, tablets, and even computers. So think of it as kind of like a universal continuity-like feature uh, that works across multiple platforms. So for those that uh, have and use Apple products exclusively, you've had this functionality for years. You basically have the ability to send and receive uh, a text message or a phone call uh, across uh, your iPad, your iPhone, uh, your Samsung tablet, your Windows computer, any of those. And yes, it does function through a third party, uh, or through an application that they give you. Uh, when the phone call comes in uh, with on one of these uh, uh, other devices, it shows up um, as a kind of like a push notification if you're using a non-Apple device. Um, if you're using an Apple device, it's continuity. So it just shows up uh, just like it would uh, if you're using it in that function. So um, anyway, so it allows you to then take your phone number and bring it to any device that you want. So that's what the first thing it does. The second thing digits can do is provide you a secondary number to use with your primary device. So uh, this can be helpful when you're trying to segregate how people get in touch with you across different phone numbers. It's basically the same way that Google Voice works. Uh, you have an application that allows you to manage that phone number and you can turn it on and off and also send and receive messages and phone calls through it as well. Um, it is something that uh, it, it works out if you obviously need a secondary number. You can add multiple numbers. Um, this was a, a feature that they were touting as you know potentially a business feature uh, that people, if they wanted to assign business business phone numbers to people, um, they could do so and it would be separate from the personal cell number of that particular user, but they would still be able to use a single device and not have to carry around multiple devices uh, that are doing essentially the same function, i.e. being a phone. So um, that's kind of how you should think about digits is two separate pieces of functionality. One is taking your primary number and replicating it across multiple devices. The other is taking and adding a secondary number to a primary device, which of course does function over all of the um, all of the other devices as well if you have that application installed on there. So as for the question about the different port, meaning micro USB uh, versus a USB-C, um, you know, it's been a standard for so long. My guess is that the, the main reason why we're not seeing it is because it's very cheap to put on these devices. And so it's a cost thing. It is. It's a complete cost thing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, really no question. It, I'm sure it's yeah, and probably a, a, the 64th of the price of a USB-C port at this point. Yeah, and and with that, they're able to when you make these mass market low end devices, they're 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 making their margins on the the number of them that they're selling, and so that volume uh, it makes a difference. It's not like uh, you know the the penny half quarter of a penny or whatever it is doesn't count. It counts a lot when they're trying to sell a bunch of these, and so um, so that's that's why they're doing it. But ultimately, that will change. Uh, they will migrate over to USB C. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Um, how long that time is, I don't know five years, 10 years, who knows? I mean, you were still seeing, you know, the, the mini USB ports up until not that long ago. In fact, there's some devices that are out there that uh, I think are probably still uh, distributing with those. But again, it's it's all, you know, relatively cheaper, not latest spec devices, of course. Oh, those mini USB ports, those are things are the worst. I, I can't wait to never see one of those again. Yeah, it's amazing when you think about like how, just how long it's been uh, since we've, uh, you know, actually had those as the standard on a device. And yet you still, I mean, I still have a handful of cables um, you know, I, I don't actually plug anything in, but I still have a handful of cables that still have it on it. So uh, either way, it's a, uh, you know, it's a standard that is, uh, you know, the micro USB was something that I think we probably started in 2005, maybe a couple years after that, but it was not, maybe not that early, but 2007. And so it's been, you know, around for 10 years. So it's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, and uh, it'll just be a migration, a slow migration over to the new USB-C standard. But seems like the one that people uh, are, you know, going to be using and a more robust, durable uh, connection. And so look for that on many more phones going forward. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Questions at the cell phone junkie.com is our email 
email address. Phone number is 650-999-0524. Send an email, give us a phone call, and let us know uh, what you would like to hear or talk about on a future show. Joey, thank you very much, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.